Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. A warning, this podcast episode contains discussion of themes and issues some listeners may find distressing. Please proceed with caution. Australia's domestic violence statistics are a national shame. On average, one woman is murdered every week by her current or former partner. Domestic violence and family violence is the principal cause of homelessness for women and children. And one in four children in Australia now are exposed to family violence, an appalling state of affairs on so many levels. Just this week, a Brisbane inquest has heard about the horrifying circumstances that led to the violent murders of Hannah Clark and her three children by her estranged husband back in 2020. A body camera worn by a Queensland police constable recorded Hannah's description of her husband's attack on his family as she lay dying from the catastrophic injuries she suffered in the burning wreck of the family car, her children already dead. It's a sobering and heartbreaking state of affairs that needs urgent attention and action. And books like Monique Mulligan's new book, Wildflower, can help start important discussions about speaking out against this insidious and destructive problem. Monique is a West Australian author, interviewer and founder of Stories on the Stage program in Perth. A former journalist, news editor and publisher, Monique combines her work at an art centre with novel writing. Back in 2020, I had the pleasure of connecting with Monique and chatting on the podcast about her debut novel, Wherever You Go. And today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat once more about her new book, Wildflower, published by Piliara Press. Welcome back to the podcast, Monique. Thank you so much for having me again. I started saying this a little bit earlier, but I'll say it again for the benefit of listeners. I, I seem to recall that when I read Wherever You Go, it was a novel that managed to make me cry when I read it. It was so beautifully written and heartachingly real in its portrayal of grief and guilt. And I, I have to say that Wildflower was no different in its impact on me, but for very different reasons. I cried tears of utter devastation when I reached the end of this one. It was gut-wrenching, um, so real in its portrayal of the effects of violence on women and children. And in the words of another Australian novelist, Tabitha Bird, it's a triumph of a novel. It shines a light on what is such a dark and ugly problem in this beautiful country of ours. So I just wanted to say congratulations. I know it must have been hard for you to write it, but it was so worth the effort and so beautiful. So I wanted to ask you to tell me about the novel and how it was that you came to write it. Well, thank you for your, your such kind words. And, you know, it's a novel that I started as a short story uh, back in 2015 um, when I thought I'd, I'd first start creative writing. And it was inspired by a photo of a wattle flower that I'd taken out bushwalking. And these, these words came to me, Acacia Miller blew in and out of our lives on the hot summer wind. And so I started this short story based on those words. And the themes that are in the novel were still in that short story, albeit, you know, not as deeply unpacked, obviously, um, because of the, the, the word count, but also because I was, I was inexperienced and, and had a lot to learn about, you know, putting that depth and layering that was needed. So 
I wrote the short story and entered it in a competition which didn't, didn't win, it didn't place, and I wanted to know what I could do to make it better because at that point I was just really trying to learn. I had no intention of turning it into a novel. It was just a story that I knew had something and, you know, even, even in that imperfect state, it had something that didn't want to let go of me. And so I followed it up by getting a manuscript assessment with Laurie Steed. And then in that process, he suggested turning it into a novel. He said, you know, the scope of the themes in this could become a novel. He loved the characters I'd, I'd created in the setting and he felt I could do that really well. But what I needed to work on was, as, as we mentioned, the, the depth that it, it had to to draw out these things better so I was writing wherever you go at the time and put it aside in the drawer as you do and just left it there until I was ready to come back to it again and so over really five six years I would just go back to Wildflower and revise it and turn it into what it is now can you tell me about the story the story is one that's set in two timelines it's it's the story of a friendship at its heart and there's there's a young girl in 1979 we meet Jane Jane is a very curious young girl you know loves big words um and she's bullied at school bullied terribly at school and has has no friends and so she's looking forward to on the last day of school she's looking forward to this summer of having no friends at all even her brother calls her Jane no friends so life is, is kind of grim and, and sad for her. She wants more than anything to find a friend and that's what she's given over this summer. She meets a young friend called Acacia Miller who, who comes into her life, moves in next door and they form a very fast and intense friendship. And the second timeline is, is about an unnamed woman and it's set in 1999, 20 years later, when a character walks into a refuge and comes face to face with someone she hasn't seen for 20 years. So that timeline follows her, I suppose, settling into the refuge and unpacking what's brought her here and what she has to do next. And even her feelings about being in, in this place and how she feels she doesn't belong here because other people have got it worse than her. So there's that timeline that sort of follows that, that arc, but the other timeline is Jane and Acacia's friendship kind of growing but also being held back to a degree by Acacia's guardedness about her home life. Yeah, I really admired the way that you split the novel up into the two points of view and it was so interesting that that second point of view in the more contemporary timeline was an unnamed woman and we don't actually get to know who that woman is until the end of the story. So I wanted to ask you, did you always have it in your mind to divide the novel that way, to have these two very different perspectives? The short answer is no. <laughs> um, for, for the first, you know, many drafts, in fact, until last year, there was no second timeline. I wrote it, you know, purely in Jane's point of view, you know, for most of the, the book's sort of life um, as a manuscript. And I toyed with the idea of giving Jane's mother, who's a very strong and, and a beautiful female character in the book, I toyed with giving her a, a point of view and just felt that I really wanted to keep the 1979 timeline 
very firmly in a child's point of view. And we'll probably talk about why, you know, at some point. With the, the 1999 timeline, that kind of came about almost, almost by accident when I was thinking, you know, I've got to put more, more layering and depth into this novel. How am I going to do it? And so I just started playing around with little vignettes and they had these botanical titles that you see in the book. And more, they were very reflective and, and sort of unpacking an emotion or, or a, a feeling, I suppose. And then I thought, oh, this could become a second timeline. And at that point, I still didn't know who that character was going to be. You know, I knew it would be somebody from the book, but who, who was it going to be? So I just wrote it without it being anyone in particular. And then I think there came this, this what if moment when I said to my husband, like, what if it was this person? And he said, no, no. But that's, that's just what I did. I, I turned it into something I never expected to and then sort of drew the plot pieces back into that and had to fit it in carefully into the, the existing story. Well, I must say that you had me guessing right up until the very end. I kept <laughs> flip-flopping between who I thought it might be and then there was kind of like a tiny clue towards the end. I thought, oh, it can't be that person. So <laughs> it's got to be somebody else. But I honestly didn't guess that it was that person um, at the end. And so you did a very good job of drawing that out and teasing the reader um, with with that storyline, I have to say. So both the points of view, which I found very interesting, were in first person. And mm -hmm. I'm guessing this allowed you to really explore the feelings and the observations of each of the characters up close mm -hmm. and personal. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about Jane. I mean, she was the most gorgeous character. I felt her frustration at not being heard, of always being excluded from adult conversations and having something to say, but being silenced because of her age. So where did your inspiration for Jane come from and how did you get inside her head? I mean, getting inside her head was was a matter of going back to, you know, what was it like when I was 10 and three quarters years old and living in Western Sydney because the story is set where I grew up, in, you know, in the same suburb where I grew up. So it's very much channeling that time. So I kind of took myself back to that time, I suppose. But Jane isn't me, and I want to make that clear quite early that Jane, you know, she we share some characteristics. We both loved to read, and I still, you know, still do. We both thought about becoming writers. We both loved big words and also, you know, loved to watch people. But she's the, the youngest of a, a family of three. She had, you know, a brother who would tease her mercilessly. I was the, the oldest of, you know, two girls at the time, and... One of the things that Jane really fears is her parents getting divorced. My parents did get divorced. So I was that, that child back in the 70s when it was such a stigma to have your parents divorced. So I kind of channeled that feeling and put that into Jane, like that, that fear of that happening, but coming from my own experience of that actually happening. You know, what, is it, what is it like when your parents are doing the best they can, but they they... But they didn't know then, I guess, you know, how important it was not to put the kids in the middle of it. And their, their focus is on themselves and their own pain. And so I think I channeled that to write Jane's, Jane's feelings and her frustrations. Yeah. Um, and I, I also had a lot of responsibility at that time. And, you know, sometimes I, I feel like I didn't have as much of a, 
of a childhood that that I I wanted. Like I did, but I, I didn't. I still didn't quite have what Jane had, like that idyllic kind of playing cricket in the cul-de-sac on a warm summer afternoon. You know, I had that sometimes, but after the jobs were done, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I just just took myself back to back to that time as best I could and really try to draw out those those frustrations of, of you know of wanting a friend so badly and um, what does that mean to a child yeah yeah beautiful and acacia i mean you gave this beautiful little girl a complex character she was protective of her mother scathing of her mother's boyfriend embarrassed about the way she lived so vulnerable yet tough too my heart ached for this little girl. Uh, can you tell me more about her and how you managed to portray her complexity so incredibly well? Oh, I, just, I just love Acacia as well. She's not the main character, but, but really she is, you know, in the sense that Jane's the narrator of this story and so we get everything through her eyes and we, we as readers, I think, feel as frustrated by not getting to know Acacia as deeply as we want to and yet in some ways we do, you know, we... we we can see it in the way that she holds herself and um, kind of leaps off the page, doesn't she? She's, yeah. yeah, it's funny when you can really care for a character so much. But I, I don't, I, I guess she's the kind of embodiment of, of, of children I know and, and who have been in these situations of family violence and, and you know, I've been a journalist. I've, I've seen seen this happen, and you see how children get hurt in these situations. And it doesn't even have to be with violence involved. It can be being a child of divorce, like I mentioned earlier, where you take on so much more than your parents realise. And sometimes they do their best to protect you, like they might argue behind closed doors, and they might think that you're not picking up on anything, but you do. And then it affects you as an adult. And I can certainly say that I had things to deal with as an adult because of what I went through as a child with my parents getting divorced. So I think I channeled all of those kind of feelings, you know, that being a child and really wanted to get that picture of what it's like to be a child and how important it is to consider the child's position in these kind of scenarios. What are they going through? Don't lose sight of that. So Acacia, just, she really just came to me, you know, in a sense, like more fully formed than any of the characters in the book. You know, she was just there and just had this feistiness about her that just felt so easy to write in comparison to so much of the rest of the book. You know, I, I don't know why I... I could channel her so well um, because, again, she's not me. But there is a, a situation I'll share kind of briefly, which I guess I, I think has connections to, to Acacia's character. And back when I was a child, um, there, there was a situation where, where my mum was seeing somebody and this person held a knife up to her in front of us. And... My sister and I were there and we would have been, I'm going to guess, about 10 and, and 6. And one of us, we, we got in front of mum and one of us just yelled out, get away from my mother, put that down, get, away, get out of our house. And we still can't figure out which one of us said it first, but we both kind of said it. Yeah. And I still remember that. You don't forget 
that kind of experience. And I'm so grateful it didn't go further than that at that particular time. But it lives on, doesn't it? You know, you can't go through that without it still being there in the back of your mind. So I think I, I kind of went to that and use that experience as well. Talking about that, I mean, Jane witnesses something, and it's not even her family, Jane witnesses something between Rose, Acacia's mum, and Daryl, the the horrible boyfriend. And she is filled with rage and and trepidation about that whole thing, and, and it haunts her memories. And yet, for poor Acacia, she's seeing that all the time, and I can't imagine the kind of impact that that would have had on her and it just made me and her vulnerability and and her protectiveness at the same time just made me feel like she must be an incredible child must have incredible strength to be able to endure that and it's just so heartbreaking at the same time to think that there are kids everywhere that see this kind of thing all the time and it's normal for them sadly yeah and that that's the thing you know it becomes normalized and and then, like, what happens next? How do how do these these children turn out? And that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? About about what those effects are and the choices they then make in their lives um, because of what's happened to them. It's a huge conversation. We could talk for hours about that. We could. I think, Monique, one of the absolute strengths of this novel, apart from the characterisation, was the little details that you peppered throughout the story that grounded us in time and place where these events occurred. Things like the food the Kellys ate, the colour of the Tupperware, the bench top, the cars people drove, the songs that were playing on the radio were just as evocative of the era as the attitudes that the people held. We're talking about a time when the attitude really was what happened inside the home was private. Even if it happens to spill out on the street and everyone knows what's going on, people looked the other way all the time, didn't they? They really did. And the, the sad reality is, you know, still do. And 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 there are so many reasons for that. But, but they did. I mean, back then you, you didn't talk about your staff, about your family staff. It, it was just not done. I remember having a conversation with my, my aunt and I think we were talking about divorce, actually, and she was just, oh, in my day, you know, you, you don't do that. You just, you, just, you just get on with things. And I know she didn't have an easy marriage, but she just chose to, to deal with it and she was very practical in her approach to how this has happened. But not everyone can, can do that. And, you know, it's... it's interesting looking back at those times and how how they've changed but then looking at how they haven't in the same way I I had this fascinating conversation the other day I got pulled over by a policeman for um, a you know drug and alcohol test on the way home from it was actually for from a talk about wildflower I'll preface it by saying everything was fine there was no (laughs) wine at this event or anything like that but he said to me, you know, what, what have you been doing today? What have you been up to? And I told him I went to give a talk about, about this book. Oh, what's the book about? He wanted to know. And I said, well, actually, it's about domestic violence and, and, and how people, you know, responded to it back in the 70s. And he just went really, like, silent. And he just looked at me and goes, yes. He said that time was, was really tough. And he said, and there's still so much more we have to do. And how amazing to have this conversation for three minutes, you know, in the car, just talking to a policeman about it and to have 
that response. It was yeah. it was good to see he could get that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Both um, Jim Kelly, Jane's dad, and the odious neighbour, Daryl, were both veterans of the Vietnam War. And you intimated that both of them had suffered from post-traumatic stress, but each of them dealt with it in different ways. Mm. What I wanted to ask you was, do you think that people or society justified violence because of the trauma of the war? Was that something that came up in your research? I, I, don't, I don't know that it, it was justified as such. I have spoken with Vietnam veterans' wives and they all, you know, had these common experiences of it being very difficult when they, you know, their, their husbands came home. And I've also read accounts of children who've been in those situations and they've talked about how, you know, their, their father was, was a changed man and would, would go silent and would you know, sometimes disappear into themselves like Trev, um, Jane's dad does. But I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose people would have back then to, to some point just how it happened because of, of the war. And, and so maybe it was almost like for some people a free pass, but it, but it shouldn't have been. I want to talk about the second point of view character in the novel. As I said earlier, a woman who remains nameless until the end of the book. This is a woman who witnessed the cycle of violence herself as a child. She watched her own mother be abused by her father and yet fell into the same situation as an adult. Monique, can you talk a bit about this and how the cycle continues? Because I think a lot of people say, you know, particularly people who are not in that situation say, why don't they just leave? But it's not that simple, is it? No, and, and that's something that's unpacked in, in the novel is that that question itself, you know, why don't they just leave? And you know, there's never an easy answer to that question, but a lot of it is because they love that person. And sometimes they think they can fix that person by doing certain things or saying the right things or behaving in the right way, that things will change. Sometimes they don't leave because they don't have the money or the resources or they're just scared. You know, they're so scared. There are, there are, there are things that potentially could happen if they leave that keeps them where they are. You know, that's just some of some of the reasons I, I guess that keeps keeps people there. And running that point of view, I wanted her to be an unnamed character because. I want her to represent the every woman in the street, you know, the, the people who are around us that we don't know perhaps that this is happening to. So it was important not to give her that name because we just we just don't know what people are going through, do we, in, in their lives and or what they have gone through unless they open up and they, they feel safe and they want to share with us. But so many times when people you know, did share what was going on with them, they would be told like, oh, just suck it up kind of thing. You know, this is, this is just, just life or what did you do? You know, you must have done something to, to deserve that. And it just breaks down the confidence. It breaks down the whole, whole person until there's so little left that there's, you know, it's very hard to, to take action. Indeed, and there was an interesting part in that point of view narrative where one woman in the refuge says to this unnamed woman that women who survive 
or who are survivors of domestic violence often have something written on their foreheads, you know, yeah. that they're easy prey, they're easy targets for yeah. other predatory males out there. And it's so easy for those women to fall into that same cycle again and again because yeah. of that. And it's so true, you know, that cycle can just, just continue um, in new relationships and with, with the, the, the children who've seen that can then continue because they pick up on that and they might continue because they don't know any better. There's so many reasons. I mean, it's just such a complex issue that there's no answers for that anyway. But, I mean, writing that scene was interesting because back when I was in my 30s and I had gone through a divorce and I was speaking with a, a pastor actually of a church and he said to me, you know, watch out, pretty much the same kind of thing, just be careful, be careful out there. And I said, you know, do I have something written on my forehead that kind of says, you know, come after me? And he says, no, you have, I don't know if we should say it. <laughs> Maybe we'll just, we'll just paraphrase. <laughs> you have F you <laughs> written on your forehead <laughs> or F off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was, I was gobsmacked because I, I was obviously holding myself very, like, closed, you know, don't, don't come near me. So that scene was actually quite easy to write because I, you know, had this memory of this conversation because I, I was feeling vulnerable and hadn't really thought about that kind of thing happening. Strangely, the whole, the, there's another chapter in there about a man called, a man called Sean. And that was taken from a real life episode as well, where a gardener came and did some work and then tried to kind of make the moves after, you know, doing some work and just turning up sort of without being invited, like, oh, I'm, I've come to do your edges today or I've come to do this. And, and me just thinking, oh, he's just being nice. And again, fortunately, that situation didn't, you know, end terribly apart from me making a phone call and saying, you know, send this person here again. Um, but yeah, you know, those, those, those situations, you could see like I've experienced how that could happen. I loved Barbara Kelly as a character. As you said, she was a really strong, very empathetic woman. I love that she tried to educate herself about violence in the home. I mean, obviously it was so far removed from her own experiences as a wife. She tried to help Acacia's mum and she tried so often to say, it's not okay uh, to have to listen night after night to a woman getting beaten up by her partner. And, and it's not okay to say it's a private matter. It starts with people like Barb, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And she was just such a, a wonderful character to write because even from the early, early days of writing her character, she played much more of a backseat role, but she always had that sympathy and or empathy, you know, for, for Rose and for Acacia. But as I kind of developed her character, she, she took on more of a, I, I suppose, a, a guiding role for her daughters, you know, she had the kind of conversation with them that I think I would have liked to have heard as a young girl. And that's not a judgment. It's just an observation that I can make now and say, oh, that's the sort of thing I'd like to say to my daughters. But, but you know, she she really is a, a woman, I guess, ahead of her time or, or, or one who was kind of growing into the time because the times were changing you know Sydney had had refuges popping up at that time um you know little ones without much support but it was sort of on that that 
cusp of things starting to happen and feminism was certainly starting to take take root more and more and so she kind of represents that that growing movement towards that. Monique if there was one thing you would like readers to take away from this novel what would it be? I would like readers to to have empathy and understanding and awareness those those are the, the things there you know it's 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 written so that I hope that it connects with people's hearts and with their their, their souls and with their minds you know I, I hope that that comes through to them that that even if this is not their lived experience, that they might be aware of what it's like for someone who does that have that lived experience and to have empathy and perhaps not to ask questions like why doesn't she leave, but more how can I help? Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I'm sure that writing Wildflower has been an emotionally draining experience. Are you taking a break from writing for a while or are you working on some other projects? Yeah, I am taking a break from writing for a while, but for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I, I work, I have a day job, and so that's been very busy. But I also have my family in the eastern states. I'm in Perth, and I haven't seen some of them for nearly two and a half years. So I, I'm having a bit of family time over the next couple of months, you know, catching up with them. Um, yeah, going to, I've got some visitors coming over, one, including one from Germany. So that's, that's things that I have to look forward to. But I also realised quite recently, I guess, how much writing something like this had taken out of me. And, you know, you, you sometimes don't realise it while you're writing because you're kind of working on adrenaline and especially in the, in the last, say, seven months, I was combining, you know, full-time work and writing and, and editing and everything on weekends. And then all of a sudden it stops and you just go, oh, now I can feel all the feelings and I really need to do that. I need to allow myself time to not start a new project. If this Writing something like this takes, takes a lot of emotional energy. So I need to be, be kind to myself, lots of walks on the beach and, and good things. Refill your well. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If readers wanted to purchase this book or any of your other work, how can they do that? They can do that on all online bookstores, Booktopia, Book Depository. Just look up Wildflower by Monique Mulligan and you'll find a you know a load of places. It's also on ebook. It will be in libraries. And if it's not, you can ask your library to order it in and it's um, same with bookshops and it's also on my website moniquemulligan.com and if you're in Australia you can get a signed copy and a bookmark. It's remiss of me not to mention how absolutely divine the cover of this book oh, is this book, yeah. by, by yeah. Lorena Carrington. This is just the most stunning cover. Did you have an idea about what the cover should look like? No I mean I had some ideas. I initially thought you know maybe it would have two girls on the front you know that kind of mm. friendship idea through there but the wattle theme is very strong in this book for for multiple reasons I mean Acacia is named after a wattle but I do kind of follow that wattle motif through the book and so I knew that I wanted to have wattle on the front cover somehow and Lorena really got that vision 
beautifully where she's managed to capture the, the light and the dark of the novel because the thing about Wildflower is it deals with really dark themes, but there's also a lot of lightness in it. There's a lot of love in Jane's family. There are some funny moments. There are some kind of almost this innocent observations that she makes and then there's the nostalgic references so there's there's a lot of light in there to combat the dark and the cover kind of well it absolutely just encapsulates that you know it has this flower that somebody pointed out recently looks like an eye um looks like an iris you know and I thought oh that's really clever but it has this darkness behind it of a storm and then it has this, this flower just bursting out and it looks fragile, but it looks powerful at the same time. And I guess it just sums up the novel so well. So I'm, you know, just thrilled with the cover. I think it's gorgeous and I, I love looking at it. So I'm not tired of looking at it yet. <laughs> well, neither am I. It's absolutely stunning. And Lorraine has done a wonderful job to capture mm. the essence of your novel in the cover like she has. With two books out in the world now, Monique, what have you learned about yourself or your writing that you wished you knew before you started out? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I've learned so much in, in that. I mean, even when I look back at the original short story of Wildflower, I've, I've learned so much about kind of embracing the conflict and and really adding those much needed layers and subtexts and everything to the story that I didn't know before you know it was I think I do have the strength in writing character and writing setting and so I would play to those strengths but what I had to learn was to go much much deeper and so I did, you know, but it's 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 been hard. I wish I'd known that earlier because then I wouldn't have sent it to agents too early. <laughs> I wouldn't have sent it to publishers too early. Um, and, you know, perhaps perhaps there would be a different story to publication for, for Wildflower. But I think those were really valuable learning experiences as well. And, you know, I can see that, that there's growth as a writer and I just hope that continues. I don't think you ever stop learning though. You know, I think that once you start thinking that, then, then things don't go so well for you. Monique, thank you for a very beautiful read in Wildflower. It's a book I hope every mother or father presses into the hands of their teenage children to read. Everyone deserves to feel safe and supported and violence is never okay. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me, Claudine. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.